0: Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN tv in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. We have an interesting podcast for you. Have you ever wondered why that junk food is so good, why you want it so bad and can't stop eating them?
1: Yeah, so I don't think the cravings are bad. I feel like it's our body's way of like telling us what we want and sometimes what we need.
0: Snack food aficionado, Erica Delgado, will digest the reason why we can't say no. Plus,
2: can you believe trees can fart? Today, we'll talk all about this gassy situation and how it affects climate change.
0: Jessica Fernandez will tell us why trees are gassing out. That's coming up on whether or not after the break. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the 7 weather team once again to do what we do best. Keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station. 7 News. We begin with our love for junk food. Oh, those cookies, chocolate bars, spicy chips, those sugar-laden wonders of modern cooking. We know they're not the best thing for us, but we can't break off the relationship. Erica Delgado dishes out the juicy details.
3: Joining me today is Katie Emerson. She has a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics and registered dietitian-to-be. She has over 1,200 professional practice hours from internships from the University of Miami's football team, Broward Sheriff's Office and Broward Health Medical Center. She just signed on with JDS Therapeutics Nutrition 21 and plans to open her own practice involving sports nutrition and athlete performance. Quite the resume there, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly appreciate it. Thank you.
1: I'm so excited to be
3: here. So we're jumping right in. And honestly, some of these questions that, you know, things we're going to go over are kind of from experience. And I'm sure you've heard this many times and maybe you've even experienced it, but before anything, let's just start with the basics. Why do you think that people just crave that good, greasy, salty junk food so much?
1: No, it's so interesting because no matter how good you have intentions of eating, you always have those moments of weakness where you're like, oh, I just want to grab something salt or sweet or, you know, and it's like you said, you have those feel good chemicals, the dopamine, the serotonin, you have those endorphins that are released when you eat these foods. So you start to make these awesome connections of happy memories when you eat that food. And it's, you go back and forth, like, are we craving that food or are we craving that feeling that we
3: get from those pleasure sensors? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I feel those feel good chemicals every time I eat this yummy food, but you know, nowadays I feel like even like the healthy options actually do come with great taste. So why aren't we kind of more prone to get grabbing those? I know they're probably not as greasy and as salty as we'd like for them to be. Um, But some of these healthy snacks do have pretty good taste these days. So why can't we just kind of gear our minds into going in that direction?
1: Yeah, you know, some of the healthy snacks taste great, some don't, <laughs> you know, right. because they're lacking some. Sugar, yeah, they they remove the sugar, they remove the fat, so sometimes it makes them a little dry and gritty. But then there are some, like you said, that like I found a couple snacks that I love, and I think the biggest challenge is people don't know about them, they don't want to try them, or it's just a lack of knowledge. So, or even accessibility. You know, like in food deserts, people are kind of limited to the food that they're exposed to because all they have is the corner drugstore, right? And they carry products that sell you know, they sell Doritos and Oreos. They're not gonna sell 180 snacks that are organic blueberry with almonds. So <laughs> I wish they did, right? Like vending machines too, you know, when you're at work, you grab what's available to you and people don't always know that these snacks, they, they think that healthy means gross. And these companies have really come full circle, like providing some really nutritious and delicious snacks. I think it's just a matter of getting those foods out there and spreading the word that they are really good for you. And they really are good taste bud wise too. Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe even taking away like that
3: whole stigma of uh, healthy food is not tasty. I mean, like you said, they've come full circle and they really have changed a lot as far as taste and what, you know, and variety of, of healthier snacks. Yeah, absolutely. I've gone mixed opinions, I guess, and not from people who are in the field or anything, but just other people like myself. But I hear sometimes, you know, well, snacking really isn't good anyway. You should just kind of stick to your three meals a day. I mean, could snacking be a good thing or should one just strictly not snack in between meals?
1: I think the concept of snacking is great and not just for the general public, but for a lot of people. Um, you know, when I deal with athletes, snacking is very important. Nutrient timing's important. People with medical conditions like diabetes, they have to control their glucose and insulin levels. So, you know, eating small frequent meals throughout the day is really important for them. I don't think it's the snacking. I think it's the portion control. Truly. I think here in America, our portions like when you go to a restaurant, they're huge, and people feel like they don't want to waste the food, so they eat it all. And so, if you're eating these giant portions for all three meals and snacking, we're over-consuming, so that becomes an issue. But I feel like if we could just pull back on the portions and like snack throughout the day, it's not a terrible thing. I think it's actually a great thing because it kind of keeps you going. And if we could just choose healthier snacks, you know. Um, <laughs> I think it's best for everybody. Yeah.
3: And I actually, I tend to agree with you on this portion control. You know, when I've traveled at times, I have noticed that maybe other countries don't serve as much on one plate as what we're used to seeing in some of the restaurants here in the States. So it does make it difficult. It's like making that decision when you have all this good stuff in front of you to just say, Hey, I don't really need to eat all of this, but kind of take a fraction of whatever's on the plate. And it's, it's kind of a mind game at times.
1: It is. And like, we kind of grew up with the clean plate club, right? Oh yeah. If if you don't finish your plate, you know, do you get dessert? And it's like, hold on, I got to finish all this food and then I'm going to have dessert. (laughs) Like it's such a crazy concept. And something I like to tell a lot of my friends and family members is like, when you order your food, when you go out, like ask for it to go container immediately and separate it, portion it out because you don't need as much food as you're getting. And it's it, it's hard because especially if it tastes really good, you know, you just eat till you're full and then it hurts. So there's like a new intuitive eating that's come out, kind of like listening to your
3: gut and eat slowly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and now that you say that, I feel like sometimes even that feeling of fullness is a little delayed. So you continue to eat even though, you probably should have stopped, you know, maybe about five bites ago, and then finally it just hits you and it just hits you head on. Like, you're like, Whoa, where did this come from? <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. I think it happens to everybody. I, I think we're such a fast paced society. It's hard to slow down. We're typically eating our meals on the go, you know, oh, to tell someone to take a breath in between each bite. like that's that's not realistic. That'd be fantastic, but Yeah, it is hard. It's something that we have to kind of train ourselves into.
3: It's kind of training your mind. So you mentioned just kind of like portion control for your meals and then also kind of just snacking in between. Do you think that that would eliminate cravings like for that crazy bad stuff or or maybe just make you feel the hunger level has gotten to a point where you can't even hold it anymore? Just as long as you continue to like maybe have smaller snacks in between?
1: Yeah. So I don't think the cravings are bad. I feel like it's our body's way of like telling us what we want and sometimes what we need. I think the issue comes back to that portion control. And like, if you're telling yourself, Hey, don't think about the elephant in the room. Like, what are you thinking about? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, It's like this diet culture has kind of placed this emphasis on like thinness and appearance over overall health. So like they talk about restricting calories and eliminating food groups and labeling them bad. So then when we crave something that's labeled bad, we start to think, oh, I can't have that. And then, of course, that's all you're thinking about until you get it. And then sometimes you overindulge. So, like, I don't like to tell people to remove foods ever when we're talking about eating habits. Mm -hmm. Give into those cravings, but really kind of watch the portion. You know, if you want some Oreos, have one. Or two, with a glass of milk, like pairing it with something so you get that satisfaction, you you know, like we were saying, the uh, neurological factors of that release of dopamine, you feel good, you got what you wanted, but you didn't overindulge. You know, you're not going to ruin your progress by giving into a craving as long as you maintain a good balance and moderation of it.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and like you said, you know, when you're out at restaurants, maybe ask for that to go box um, when as the food is coming. Same as like maybe you're getting that Oreo or two at home. Maybe serve yourself those two Oreos, but then walk away from the pack because if you stay with that pack in your hand, I mean, it just it's, it will continue to keep on coming out.
1: <laughs> it, and it comes back to training yourself, right? Because some people that's easier said than done. Some people are like, I can't have it in the house, and that's respectable. Absolutely, do what works for you, but like. If you can try to find those little baby steps into making yourself happy and still maintaining like a good balance, it's great, but we got to work on the training part of it. You know, and sometimes it takes a little
3: longer than others, but it's just like any training, you know, or learning to do anything just with practice. It makes perfect, right? You kind of eventually get used to doing that.
1: Yeah. And we'll probably fail a couple (laughs) of times getting, (laughs) getting to the end result, but that's okay. You like learn what works for you and what doesn't work for you.
3: Now I know that we're, you know, obviously we're just talking about this in general, as far as, you know, you and me and maybe just the average person, but do you think that there are people that maybe struggle with this a little more, like as far as maybe more of like a food um, obsession or a food addiction? I mean, does that even exist?
1: Absolutely. So like when you look into the research with food addiction, it's kind of controversial, but the end result is the pretty high consensus that it's as real as the drug and alcohol addiction. And again, it becomes those neurological factors of the reward and motivation system of giving ourselves what we want, receiving that dopamine release, feeling great, but then it's, re- it's quickly replaced with like a feeling of guilt because you maybe overindulged or, you know, you right. went off of a path that you had told yourself not to do. So it kind of manifests into, you know, eating disorders and body dysmorphia and depression. So food addiction is real. And that's why people seek out dieticians and even um, go to counseling and kind of help figure out where they can get that dopamine serotonin release without damaging their health and, you know, their, their mind, body and soul, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess
3: it's a good thing, as we talked about earlier, how a lot of these companies are now helping provide more of those healthy snack options. And, you know, you see it in vending machines around, you know, you don't just see those old vending machines with, you know, the chips and the Doritos and the chocolate, but they actually do have some healthier options these days. So hopefully, you know, that kind of helps push everyone in the right direction over time.
1: Yeah, we've been trying to locate like campus vending machines and we've been tracking, even when I was at Broward Sheriff's Office, try to... Fill those machines with healthier options. Unfortunately, they just don't sell, but we keep pushing for it. Keep trying, innovating, you know, giving some incentives for people to, you know, explore these new foods. And hopefully, hopefully we'll get to a point where people like them (laughs) and keep eating them.
3: And I think it will. It's just like the unknown, right? Like the more you introduce something and the more you uh, raise awareness to it, I think people eventually become a bit more comfortable to it and accept it, I guess, or at least give it a shot. And then in time, they'll see that, you know, that there is some good to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's just a matter of education and exposure. Right, right. Obviously, this is
3: a big problem. And I know that everyone even people I'm sure like yourself at times will give into those cravings. But like you said, as long as you have that portion control, I feel like maybe the snacking in between will kind of make things a little bit um, easier for us. Just kind of training our minds to, to maybe making like the, the better options every now and then.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's more of learning what you can and can't live without and making little small adjustments that make like a bigger impact on your health and how you feel. Absolutely. Katie, thank
3: you so much again for joining us. I truly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, Erica. Tree farts coming up next. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app.
3: Get the latest forecast models.
0: My seven weather blog. And of course, seven's cone on your phone.
3: It's yours free from the storm station. Seven news.
0: Welcome back. Mother Nature shakes, quakes, rattles, brews hurricanes and tornadoes. And now we can add tree farts to the list. Jessica Fernandez dives into this funny yet rather complicated climate issue.
2: I'm meteorologist Jessica Fernandez and with me today I have Melinda Martinez, a wetland ecologist at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. And today, interestingly enough, we're going to be talking about tree farts. And I know that a lot of people are probably questioning themselves right now and asking, well, what is a tree fart?
4: Yeah, so um, tree farts, I guess we call them farts because (laughs) they're very similar to the gases that humans produce um, internally and then are emitted um, when when people fart. But in in trees, this happens because in wetlands... A lot of these gases, um, especially uh, methane, so carbon dioxide, which a lot of people know a lot about, and methane are naturally produced in wetlands because there's so much standing water. And so, in trees, live and dead, this can uh, some of these gases can be transported up the tree stem um, in different ways. So, in live trees, this happens because of water uptake through the roots that is transported to the leaves, and it um, transports some of these gases up. But in standing dead trees, which is what my study has focused on, um, some of these gases are just just naturally diffused due to pressure differences between the soils and inside the trunks, um, which are now have a lot of open cells because a lot of the water is flushed out because they're dead. And so they just naturally um, diffuse out solely to the sides of the the stems, the tree stems. And um, yeah, they're just very similar to the gases that we produce. And that's why we call them tree farts.
2: So I know that this has some importance when it comes to climate change. So what do tree farts have to do with future climate change?
4: Yeah, so the reason why we're looking at these especially these three gases, specifically carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, which is the third greenhouse gas, uh, is because especially methane and nitrous oxide, these are, well, they're called greenhouse gases because they... Um, Kind of hold the energy, the sun's energy, and that's what keeps the earth warmer. And when you have too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, you're holding more and more energy, and that's what's driving climate change because our planet is just containing so much of the sun's energy because these gases are in the atmosphere. But here, um, for this study, we're looking at how standing dead trees might be affecting the role of regional greenhouse gases. Um, And so as the climate changes, we're seeing a lot of forest dieback in these freshwater forested ecosystems. And this is because of saltwater intrusion and more um, flooding. increasing flooding events are happening. And so as the climate changes, we're expecting to see more um, die-offs along the coastline. And so this means more, um, these wetlands become more of a source than a sink, a carbon source. as opposed to a carbon sink.
2: Right, and right now, forests are a carbon sink, but if they die off and start to become a wetland, uh, they don't become so much of that, right?
4: Yeah, but there's still wetlands, but it just becomes um, it becomes a source. But it you have like marsh, marsh grasses migrating in, uh, which don't sequester as much carbon as freshwater forested wetlands do. And so you have like this change in ecosystem services. And so that's why it's very important to look at.
2: So what would be the term for these forests that you studied?
4: Yeah, we call these areas, well, when you see this many standing dead trees, we call them ghost forests. And just because the standing dead trees, which we also call snags, um, are basically just remnants of the previous state, which was a healthy forest. And it's kind of eerie to see because you can tell us something drastic has happened because there's so many standing dead trees. Um, But, you know, you're just left wondering, like, what happened?
2: So what was your role in this research? And can you tell us a little bit more about the experience that you had over there?
4: Yeah, so I guess this, uh, the research that, that I did was part of my dissertation. And so it was more of a two part thing where I was looking at what what the role of the standing dead trees or snags was themselves in relation to greenhouse gases. And so we thought that maybe they, that <clears throat> the straws might, or the snags might be acting as straws for greenhouse gases to produce in the soils and just being emitted to the atmosphere. And because there's no canopy or leaves at the trees because they're dead, um, you just, there's no photosynthesis or there's no carbon uptake. And so they're just these snags are just pumping out greenhouse gases. Um, But in my second chapter, we focused on identifying the main sources of methane specifically, which is one of the three greenhouse gases. And we found that it was actually, if we're using the same analogy, um, that the snags were actually acting as filtered straws. And so some of the methane um, that is inside the snags themselves um, can change and become converted back to CO2 by microbial communities living inside the tree. And then the third chapter focuses on uh, using remote sensing, uh, so NASA satellites, um, to determine, to detect early warning signals of a shift from forest to marsh um, by using the Landsat Archive, which dates back to
2: 1985. How many ghost forests do you think are basically present right now? Is this something that's just a growing phenomenon, and how would that affect greenhouse gas emission?
4: Yeah, so uh, this is not just exclusive to North Carolina. This is happening all over the southeastern U.S. coastline. Globally, I'm not fully sure, um, because I think most of my research knowledge is based around U.S., Um, but Yeah, we do expect some of these freshwater forested coastlines to, you know, experience some dieback. Um, We don't actually know the full extent, like how, like what the current state of ghost forest is because it hasn't been classified. Um, I do know researchers are working on that currently. And so it will, we will get an estimate in the next few months, I think, as soon as that paper comes out.
2: Right. And obviously, you know, due to sea level rise, there's obviously an expected increase in ghost forests. And then so that obviously would present a problem when it comes to that greenhouse emission and just climate change in the future in general, correct?
4: Yes, definitely. It just creates like a, <laughs> oh, sorry, uh, it just creates like a positive feedback. Like you, you're getting more um, greenhouse gases being emitted to the atmosphere, but then in, in the atmosphere itself is just containing more, uh, which is encouraging like warmer climates. And so that's what I mean by positive feedback. <laughs> In the
2: long term, let's say we continue to have these ghost forests, would it be a positive feedback or would it then start to become a negative feedback when it comes to greenhouse emissions?
4: Well, these are transient um, ecosystems, so they're not always going to be a forest or um, a ghost forest. They will eventually become marshes. And so there's a chance that they can become a sink again, um, you know, once the the snags um, fall over, because they will eventually. Um, But some of these areas will also be drowned by sea level rise. And so it just depends on um, sediment accretion rates along the shorelines, um, and I guess how fast some of that marsh grass can move in.
2: The next thing I wanted to ask you is, what part of the forest emits the most greenhouse gases?
4: So soils still do emit more greenhouse gases than the trees themselves um because and that's just because it's the main source <clears throat> um but trees are just an additional pathway that greenhouse gases can be emitted um but it, it like so for example the paper that just came out we showed that soils um emit four times more gases than the standing dead trees themselves so although it's not the same amount a lot of studies don't take into account the snags or snag greenhouse gas emissions because very few Studies have looked at standing dead trees and I'm talking about like maybe four or five um, globally. And so this is just, this is just like the beginning. And I'm just pointing out like, hey, we should definitely be looking at these standing dead trees as additional pathways um, and be um, making sure
2: they're taken into account in global climate models. The ghost forests only make up one fifth of the greenhouse gases emitted from the forest on the coast of North, North Carolina, is that correct? Yes. yes. So in the grand scheme of things, how much of a real effect would this have on climate change being that it is a relatively small percentage?
4: Yeah, so it is, it, I guess, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small percentage, but when you for global carbon budgets um, and greenhouse gas budgets in general, There's a lot of uncertainty, especially with methane and nitrous oxide, because not that many studies have been looking at, especially nitrous oxide um, and methane is getting more momentum now. And so this is just providing um, researchers with more information as to, I guess, close that gap of uncertainty, like letting other researchers know exactly how much is coming from each pathway.
2: OK, great. Um, so because I know that you actually went into the forest, correct? Yeah, I did a lot. Of,
4: I did a lot of the measurements myself um, in the field. So
2: how was that? I saw a picture of you and you had like this little Ghostbuster backpack on. <laughs> how was yeah. that experience for you? Um, Well,
4: working in wetlands in general, no matter what type of wetland, I think is one of the hardest jobs because it's very, well, you know, the soil is wet and constantly saturated. Um, and it's really hot, especially in more temperate tropical climates. And you have to wear waders because you don't know how how deep the water may be in certain areas. And so, and you do most of these measurements during the summertime. And so it's just very um buggy and hot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's very difficult and you have to carry a bunch of heavy equipment. Um, but you know these measurements are necessary, um, to kind of close that uncertainty gap. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, and this is relatively new research. Like when, when was this all conducted?
4: Uh, this was in 20, 2018, 2019. Yeah. Right. So
2: now there's, it's kind of like, you know, in the grand scheme of like climate change, what does this mean for them?
4: You think about the number of trees? Cause, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are slightly higher for live trees because they have the the help of the water transported from the roots to the leaves and so that's why it's a little bit more but because there's leaves in the canopy um there's carbon uptake so kind of like balances out or kind of like offsets um but if you think about the number of trees like globally um especially in wetland areas they might be it it might be a a significant number that could help close that um, uncertainty. And so the next few, I guess the next, this research is just like showing the next steps of what should be done at the global scale because there's a lot of trees out
2: there. (laughs) Right. So basically this is sort of, you know, one piece of the puzzle Yes. in terms of, you know, now that we know that ghost forest produced carbon emissions well what's the next step now well obviously it's to continue to research correct
4: yeah and so um, this summer we have a global effort by many researchers that are going to do tree stem greenhouse gases from upland areas so this is just non-wetland areas um so this includes like i'm not sure if you know what upland means it's just just non-wetland so it's like your backyard, (laughs) that's an upland area. Um, And so we're we're doing this all at the, like several researchers are doing this around the same time in July or whatever growing peak season is. Um, And we're gonna compile those data together and we'll have a better idea of what it is globally.
2: Right, right, okay. So basically taking into account the wetland areas and the non-wetland areas. Yeah. and then yeah because
4: it is it is much less in in upland non-wetland areas because it's much higher in wetland areas because it, it's constantly saturated and so it creates this it creates a conducive habitat for microbial communities that love zero oxygen conditions and because of that it, they produce methane um, and that's how we get so much.
2: All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the Weather or Not podcast.
0: Thanks, Jessica. Coming up next week, the National Hurricane Center does a pretty good job at showing you the area where a storm could make landfall. But how strong it may be, that's still pretty challenging.
1: Intensity forecasts and forecast models haven't been able to accurately predict how strong and how quickly hurricanes can grow can a new tool be the answer that the Hurricane Center needs to improve their forecasts?
0: That's on our next issue. If you have a question that we can answer in an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pferro@wsvn.com. at Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. The entire staff will be very happy. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7 And of course, live on air at WSBN 7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about our podcast. We need all the listeners we can get. The next issue of Weather or Not drops July 20th. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.